In episode two, we're talking to Principal Rob Lands on all things student behaviour and ways to leverage your school systems, model and approach to student management in order to positively influence your staff's wellbeing. Welcome to Well-Led Schools with Adrienne Hornby. On this podcast, we talk about all things staff wellbeing, school culture and leadership. Join me for incredible and rich conversations with a range of experts who will give you tips, tricks, and inspiration to best support the well-being of the staff in your school and yourself. I'm your host, Adrienne Hornby, a health and well-being consultant and former school leader. I partner with schools across Australia to tailor and embed staff well-being action plans aimed at addressing staff burnout and building positive working environments. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of Well-Led Schools. In today's episode, we're talking to Principal Rob Lands, who is an expert on student management and behaviour, and of course, on how to lead a school with well-being in mind. Before I welcome our guests, I want to talk a little bit about why it's so important to address the link between student behaviour management and our staff's wellbeing. Working in education is inarguably a stressful profession. Many schools will point their finger at the system-wide impacts like mounting workloads and lack of staff work-life balance as leading culprits, which they certainly are. But for many schools, challenging student behaviours and poor classroom and student management are some of the top reported sources of our staff's workplace stress and they require our focused attention. Developing a systemized and well-understood school-wide approach to student and behaviour management in consultation with staff and the whole community is one of the most effective ways to support our staff and their well-being. And I get it. On the surface, staff initially seemed overwhelmed with their workloads, which can lead us to offer solutions that we think they might need, but in fact might be missing some of the root causes of their stress and frustration in the first place. You see, for many, perceptions of high workload, high administrative tasks, a lack of planning time is all amplified when they struggle to connect with their students to teach their program, and to see the learning outcomes that they desire. And when they lack skills and experience in behaviour or student management, or they're frustrated by a perceived lack of support from their school's leadership team, this is really when those frustrations can bubble over. All of this impacts their self-efficacy, their engagement and work satisfaction, and this is having a drastic impact on school culture. Our task as a school is to find effective ways to connect with and engage our students through systemized and well understood and implemented student management processes. It is here that our staff can feel engaged, connected to and part of their school community and importantly, like their well-being matters just as much as the students. I am so excited to share with you the source of this wisdom and expertise and my very first guest on the Well-Led Schools podcast. Without further ado, let's dive into the episode. 
episode is brought to you by our signature Well-Led Schools Partnerships, a 12-month program that brings leaders and staff together to create a shared vision for their school and empowers them to create an action plan that leads to needle-moving changes in school culture and morale. Doors to our partnerships open only once per term. Stay updated on program openings and sign up for the waitlist at adriannehornby.com.au forward slash school hyphen partnerships. Hey, boss. How you doing? <laughs> Welcome to the show. So thank you so much for giving me your time. Just before Christmas, you've been running around like headless chook. Always this time of year. Yep. Man with a wife and three kids and being pulled here, there and everywhere. That was. What did you say when you walked in? I oh, said, what have you been up to? I said, everything and nothing. <laughs> That's you. That's you in a nutshell. So <laughs> I've got Rob here today to chat all around student behavior and staff well-being. And he's actually, what makes him really special is that he's been my boss and my principal for what, the last six years? Mm-hmm. Is it six? Yeah. yeah. So, in fact, he was my last principal before leaving education and going out and doing this stuff. So, I can honestly say that I learned all of my skills in student management from you. You perfected the craft for me. You're, I'm probably <laughs> saying this and you're like, it was not perfect. <laughs> Nothing's perfect. <laughs> no, it was no good. What is she talking about? But, no, I've learned so much under your leadership, you know, your biggest fan. So thank you for no. being <laughs> Thanks for saying it. That's very, very nice. <laughs> All right. So the first question I actually want to ask before we get into hearing a bit more about you is what's one thing that you like to do to look after your health or well-being or both? I'm a big nature person. So so reconnecting is how I look after myself in terms of my health and well-being. So getting out and about in places, you know, I just love, obviously, you know a lot about me, but getting out into the into nature, going for massive bushwalks or doing some pretty crazy stuff, paddling the Tassie or <laughs> that yes, kind of stuff. Yeah, gets... for those listening, Rob actually paddled all the way from the mainland down to Tassie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> took us 15 days in a kayak, four of us, so it was, it was brilliant. But that is actually what re-energizes me. That's my health and my well-being. And it ticks boxes with, you know, keeping fit and keeping healthy. But the biggest part of it is, is, my, is my mental well-being and what it does for me in terms of that rejuvenation yeah well you're living on the edge like we followed as um the whole school followed rob's journey we didn't know (laughs) if he was going to make the night each time but he did so (laughs) i'm sure that it gave you clarity of the mind being out there on the water yeah oh that's awesome all right so before we get into this episode and talking all about student behavior and well-being and then how that impacts and flows into teacher well-being i'm really keen for you to tell the listeners a little bit about who you are what you do and your professional background up until this point. Yeah. So, you know, who I am, what I do, again, that core theme coming through. So that avid nature person being out in the bush, loving it and doing all that kind of extra activities. And then that's what kind of funneled me into wanting to be a PE teacher from the start. So mm. being outdoors with people and enjoying that space. And then, you know, as things progress through uni, getting into the outdoor ed side of things. And so that was really my core starting point for being a teacher, outdoor education. And that led into a whole different realm of relationships with kids because Mm -hmm. what I saw at school compared to what I saw when I was out in the bush with them and doing all these crazy things was was two different types of kids. Um, And it was so, so different. And the relationships that I made with those kids out in the bush then became the pivotal point of being able to help them in school settings, you know, and them understanding me as a person and me understanding them in a different light. And then when things fell apart for them in that space, I still had something to connect with 
them and they could always get back to me and go actually this guy maybe understands a little bit differently or, or I can open up to this person in a different way yeah and so that led into student services at school it's fascinating all I was thinking about when you were talking there is those times where you go on camps with kids and some of the the most challenging kids to connect with when you're away on camp you just definitely saw a different side of them a so raw different. and vulnerable side but also where they could let loose and they weren't kind of confined sometimes to that sort of in-school learning side 100%. of things. Which <laughs> or for those kids that found it tricky to learn in certain ways when they're out in, the, out in the bush or doing a different task, it becomes them that hits the front yes. of the group or the spotlight because they go, actually, I can do this. This is easy. I'm not scared of heights or I'm not scared of whatever. Yeah. I can't do a test and I can't you know, write an essay, but, hey, I can do this really easy. And then kids are looking up to them for once. So it can just completely change that, I guess, you don't mm. want to say pecking order, but. You know, that's what happens. And what about the flip side of the kids who normally do really well in, ac- in an academic construct exactly. and then they go into that space yep. and then for once they're challenged there yep. and they learn something about themselves. Yep. So they're used to being on top and everyone looking up to them and all of a sudden they're depending on someone else mm. because they're either scared or they're not sure or they don't yeah. know how to do it. So brilliant. Awesome place yeah. to start. Yeah. All right. So then you got into student services. So then that led me into wanting to do more for kids and those relationships side sort of things led into student services and then becoming year coordinators, you know, or getting into the actual level two in student services in a high school and, and working with kids on all of these different levels and trying to understand where they come from and why they're exhibiting certain behaviors or, do, or doing certain things and being able to understand, you know, the history behind them and their journey that led them to that point. Yeah, so you started in, I forget all the time because we worked in a primary school together, mm-hmm. but you started in that high school, started in high school environment and then, yeah, later on moved into primary. Exactly. Where that took me was then moving into a departmental-based sort of behaviour support person or specialist and working across many different schools in many different portfolios, you know, whether it be high school or college or primary. And then that led me into the, you know, wanting to get into management in a primary school and, and opportunities where I took a, a deputy's role then met and then yeah the principalship there which mm. led into you know changing a school which was a really tricky social emotional sort of a space and working with families and communities and students and, and staff to change what it was in that space rewinding a little bit your role in the department as you sort of traversed around the schools to support them what did that involve so that was almost in the context of you know, like a contractor that would go in and work with staff at different schools. So I was that specialty person would come in and do observations of the students, of the staff, hear all the background story and try and put together a picture as to why students were doing what they were doing and what the school and the staff there could then do to meet those needs. Yeah, so some of the more sort of tier three students. Definitely tier yeah. three students, so, you know, the higher end, but also looking across groups, working with groups that might be, you know, tracking a little bit tricky. So I remember working... I probably shouldn't say names, so but in a primary school where their their leadership cohort was really starting to go off the rails and there was all this infighting happening and nasty sort of business. And so I remember doing, you know, circle times with the whole of year six and interviewing two to three classes of year six students and then getting them all together in a big circle time and unpacking what was happening and why it was happening and how it made people feel and <laughs> yeah. all this backflow. And so the principal at that school that I was working with, you know, said that that changed the whole like feeling and vibe of the school of what students were doing well it's holistic right it's getting everybody involved to solve the problem rather than just putting together a plan for a one student it's how do we involve everybody in the school community not to isolate the one child but to work together and create that positive environment where they it's more inviting for them to come in and be able to learn and feel connected and what you do for one student, you can do for every student as well. You know, it's yes, not this singular yeah. thing. And you're absolutely right. We have to get away from 
you know, singling out students. And we need to get into what's, you know, identified as the better practice across bigger cohorts so that it's applicable to everybody. Right. All right. So we move from the department then into a deputy principal role. And now out there as a principal. (laughs) There as a principal. Absolutely. And working in those spaces to understand those bigger concepts and trying to keep all of that, you know, picture together inside my head in Mm. terms of what it is that makes a space or a place or a community, you know, harmonious. Yes. And I know from personal experience of working with you in our school, we went from, you know, it was a really tricky demographic and it still in many ways was, but we were able to work with that community and, and with those students to be able to create a functioning school. I always sort of bang on about that when we talk. It was a functioning school in the sense that it was a place where you felt safe to come and learn and it wasn't always that way <laughs> a really different reputation and it just changed so much over your leadership and then our former leader as well that's right it's about understanding what the options are and being able to have those options available to you because it, i mean you know a school or a good community that has you know good behavior protocols it doesn't mean behavior disappears it just means that you have a good system and people understand it in regards to what to do when something happens and how to go about it. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, is that student behavior and student well-being is a growing challenge for many schools and particularly after the pandemic. You know, a lot of the time student well-being and behavior and our ability to manage them in the classroom is so tied to their feeling of connectedness and belonging. And really the pandemic kind of shattered that, particularly for a few different states across Australia. So I'm thinking Victoria, you know, they had some long periods of lockdown. New South Wales, definitely. But, you know, even over in WA, where people weren't able to see their family or connect with family in other states, it had such a drastic impact. And those social ties are so important. And just knowing the norms of school, that was really dysregulated. And, you know, the work that I do with schools is running the anonymous staff well-being surveys to pinpoint not only how staff are faring in terms of well-being, burnout risk, and then the overall school's approach to culture, but also asking them about what their leading stresses are. Mm. And when I'm looking at the national averages, we've got about 43% of staff are reporting a student managing challenging student behaviours as a top stressor. And in some schools, it's up to 65% of respondents are reporting that as an issue. So we think so often, oh, it's you know work-life balance and it's workload, which it is. But in fact, oftentimes, staff perceive those their workload is higher when they're struggling to manage student behaviours or to be able to connect with the students in their classroom. Mm. So what are your observations about the current situation experienced by schools when it comes to student behaviour and wellbeing? And what do you think might be leading to any of those challenges faced? Look, it's such a big question. And if we could nail that answer every time, then we'd be well ahead Mm. of what we, you know, knowing what we needed to do. So, you know, you touch on the pandemic and how significant that is, and I don't think we'll feel the full effects of that significance of that impact until maybe another couple of years down the track when we, or even, you know, in the next decade of time. But before that, I always talk to you, talk to my staff around what was what was happening across society as a reflection of what's then happening in schools, mm. because, you know, schools are those little microclimates of emotions that come from that bigger world space. And you have that ability in a school to then try to, control or adapt that environment but it's it's massively impacted on on what's happening or what's coming from society so for me it was the expanding growth of society and the population and then the exponential sort of impact that comes from that so whether it would be you know poverty whether it would be you know access to good food or you know 
essential needs and resources, but the experience that comes from those families. And then as the modern world increases and we seem to get faster in things, that has an impact on those people that are, you know, let's say, you know, low money earners or generationally, you know, let's say they're in housing or something. And so we, you know, experienced a lot of families like that in the space or in the community that we were at. The tricky thing that comes from that, though, is, is the complexity. So we see an increasing number of kids with, with ADHD. We see an increasing number of kids with autism. And so what then happens in a classroom space for a teacher is we're not just dealing with, you know, the one or the two. We're dealing with, you know, yeah. a number of kids in a, in a classroom. Mm, and so skill sets there to manage those, what I call that expanding dynamic or society's dynamic in a classroom, it is what we're asking teachers to to manage and be able to pick up super quickly and then you think now in a pandemic time where there is no time to do any professional learning and no one to cover you to go and do it we're not we're actually not developing the skills to be able to handle those complex needs and growing complex needs of students in the class and we talk about you know communication is a massive point that you know we'll talk a lot about through the behavior side of things but we're asking kids to come into a school and be or expecting them to be, you know, really good at communicating how they're feeling or their emotions mm. or, you know, whereas at home, they we, we have no idea what their type of communication is or, or how yeah. they deal with trauma or problems or whatever. Like if their, you know, go-to at home is to everyone be quiet and go to your rooms and, and never talk about it, imagine what they do in the classroom and then we're there expecting them to do something different. So what they experience in that life can be vastly different to what we want them to do in a classroom setting. And so understanding and tapping into every single individual in that room so that they're feeling comfortable or that they're able to, you know, be calm to be able to get the best result out of them is one of the hardest things Mm. that we can ever try and do. So to come back to what you're saying, that those challenges are, you know, part of what we're seeing across a changing society. And Uh, what I was thinking about too is like that lack of community connection anymore and family networks. Like that is so important for our well-being and our understanding of social norms and that web of people to support us. Yeah, mm. yeah. Whereas nowadays it's almost like we're more disconnected, or it doesn't matter if someone's dysfunctional in a public space. We put our heads down and walk past, you know, rather than a community like you said would maybe get around and fix that up or help out or, or make sure mm. there wasn't. Back in the days when we lived in tribes and everyone did whatever, then everyone was there to help each other and we had a job to share. So that's interesting. From a school point of view, then, so we're looking really at like a societal issue and even sometimes uh, things that extend from the family home, mm-hmm. but. From a school point of view, so we can sort of think about the things that are Mm. more in our control, what do you think might be leading to any challenges faced in that setting? Yeah, in a school setting. Yeah. And challenges, behaviours that are derived from that. I think there, and I'll reflect back on my own personal experiences on some of this, it's feeling like you don't connect to the space that you're in. And so if you're not connecting to that school or that environment, then you're less willing to be lower those defences or lower those guards to mm-hmm. enable that to happen. So schools that are able to provide environments that make people feel calm and welcome is, is the key. Mm. Because and that loyalty too. Yeah, loyalty, <laughs> all those kind of things. If they care about where they are, then they're going to care about what they do. You know? And that's the basic functionality of a school Yeah, is, you know, outside of ourself, that next factor that influences our well-being is our connection to others 
And we, yes, we, those who lead our school in particular, we need to feel connected to them. We need to feel that loyalty, like we're being cared for and supported in that space. 100%. 100%. It's the most important thing in terms of, you know, understanding relationships and working with students to foster that environment of safety, you know, because once you get kids feeling safe, once you have leaders that understand what it takes to, you know, build those bridges and make those connections, then you're going to start, you know, building absolutely everything else from that. All of those things will grow from those strong relationship foundations. Yeah. Hi there. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to chat to you about our anonymous staff wellbeing surveys. You see, you can't rely on what you think you know about your staff's wellbeing. Unless you've taken the time to collect verbal and written feedback from your staff and analyse the data, there's no way you have the full picture of what's happening in your school. Our anonymous staff wellbeing survey engages staff by allowing them to feel heard and gives leaders tangible data that can be used to create a strategic action plan for improved wellbeing at each individual school. You can choose between two packages. Our DIY staff wellbeing survey option is where you'll receive an editable and easy to distribute survey with a guide to run and interpret your data yourself. Or our survey with data analysis and recommendation option. Here, I will work with you to conduct your survey and analyse your data and provide you with a full, in-depth review of your data and personalised recommendations for you to begin implementing right away. Purchase and download all you need to start capturing staff voice and get started on your school's improvement journey at adrianhornby.com.au forward slash staff hyphen wellbeing hyphen surveys. Now back to the show. I'm curious in your experience, is it always schools that have like a lower ICSIA rating? Who are the ones who experience more challenges when it comes to their student? Or have you seen schools with higher ICSIA ratings also experience challenging student behaviours? For those of you who are listening along going, what is an ICSIA rating? So it's the a rating or a score given to schools based on the level of disadvantage or I guess in many ways the socioeconomic area of the school. So many things can impact it, including access to education in the area, jobs. And so obviously in Canberra, <laughs> there's lots of public service jobs. So many of the school's exceed ratings are naturally higher. Coming back to that question, Rob, have you seen that in schools, what's the general trend across schools? Is a lower ICSIA rating always mean challenging student behaviours or does it not matter about the rating? So in my experience, I've definitely seen both. What I'm going to say now is that I I do think that potentially we see some earlier behaviours, and I say earlier in terms of those junior students coming out from lower areas, lower SES areas, and I feel that's just because of the nature of the opportunities that they've had to experience or, you know, or things that have been modelled to them in regards to how to behave or what's mm. appropriate mm. or, you know, what the values are. But my answer in regards to the difference is no. I think I've seen just as extreme behaviours in, in private schools or in, you know, high you know, uh, public schools. And I think we were sort of chatting about is in regards to what you can do with those students and those behaviours. And I feel that once you work with those students from some of the lower SES areas, it can actually gain more benefit or more progress in some of the things that you do with them because 
you're giving them opportunities and you're showing them how to understand or interpret elements of life or learning and then those opportunities and those doorways open for them and then you know that barrier is gone they're moving forward in a journey of like exciting you know and i'm learning stuff and i'm doing yeah and i can be successful exactly you know those opportunities whereas in the other sort of space it's almost like their behavior is almost they've been given those opportunities but they're choosing to move away from them and it could be a bunch of other reasons as well it certainly is not an exclusive like if you're from a lower scs you're going to get worse perhaps than a higher scs and i think yeah it's just a different you know, story that you have to look at. And, you know, when I look at my data, the top two schools who where staff are reporting that challenging student behaviours are a stressor, both of them come from schools with ICSIA ratings on either the higher end or the lower end of the scale. So from my point of view, what it looks like and what I know about these schools is that because they haven't developed a behaviour management plan, policy and system and structure or even framework that all of the staff know and understand, let alone and the students and the community know and understand, that's why they're experiencing the challenge. So it can just be, you know, if staff don't understand and then there's no systemised approach to this, then, of course, you're going to experience the challenges no matter what the demographic. Like, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Like, like if you could imagine if there was a, such a thing as the worst school ever, you could have a teacher running the best class with those kids and they could be getting, you know, the best benefits and the most amazing learning ever, even though it was classified as the worst school, and you could flip it over on, on its head on the other way. The best school, you could have, you know, the worst class of kids achieving stuff because, and I'm going to say here, you know, it's because of the connection to the staff member. Mm. The staff member is able to work with those individuals in that room and get the best out of them, then, you know, the behaviours are going to go away. But if it's the opposite, and I've seen many, many good kids get into a classroom where they lose connection with that pivotal person, and the teacher is the pivotal person in that mm. space. There's just no denying it. If they don't have a relationship with them, you know, kids that have been tracking well, you know, within weeks or within months, you know, completely change mm. it and just start to not wanting to do this or not wanting to do that or not wanting to learn because they don't have that connection. So what are some common mistakes that you see with schools, leaders and staff when it comes to the management of student behaviour and their wellbeing? You know, your comment in the last sort of discussion that we had there was was bang on. If a school doesn't have really clearly defined processes that staff can follow, and if they don't have clear guidelines that students can understand, then there's no Mm. predictable path for them to find security in. And I mean staff and student, because a predictable environment allows everybody to understand what's going to happen, what's going to happen next and how to work within those Consistency. Consistency. Spot on. And this is the thing is that you can't just decide on a behaviour management plan or policy and flow chart that comes out once that we know from experience that that does not work. I worked with you for a number of years and we were constantly having to go back and revise and revisit Mm -hmm. it because Mm -hmm. people forget or they get stressed or they get really caught up in working on their literacy program, or they can even be quite challenged by one particular student, that that overall classroom structure and the way that they follow those routines when it comes to student management can go out the window. And it's really normal. We all do it. Yeah. You know, we do it at home with our own families. Because <laughs> we, we're emotional yeah. beings. Yeah. And emotions come into play. And yeah. emotions come into play and you know, you lose a little bit of that clarity of what you're doing and why you're doing it, which is why it's so important to have a process to fall back on because Mm. it's the handrail, you know, when you're in that escalated state, because we are, 
you know, mm. we're emotional beings and mm. a kid can come into it and change everything up. You need that hand around a hole. What am I going to do next? How am I going to Yeah, what do I come back to? What's the process that I follow? We all do it. Did we follow the process? What happens in this situation? What's your experience on developing those processes and frameworks and systems? Is it something that, you know, we go and do as a leadership team or does it really need to have that whole school buy-in for it to be successful? I can only go back to the exact journey that I ran at at our school, you know, and, and that in context was you had to have buy-in and buy-ins built from the staff by working with them, not doing it to them. No one wants something done to them and like, here's our answers, here's everything, go and do that. That doesn't create team, it doesn't create good morale and it certainly doesn't work in terms of a behaviour pattern. The school and the staff there have to own that journey and that was the difference that we did at our previous you know, primary school. We worked through those, we had the discussions, we talked about the different elements and the different students that would pop up. And we talked about, well, at this point in our section, you know, this student's going to go and do whatever. So what do we do then? You know, and how do we, and the other thing I was going to say before is it's about being fair and consistent. And I think it was the word that you Mm. used. And if you're fair and consistent, being firm is part of that, you know, and kids are massive in terms of social justice. If you, do things differently for different kids. But so are teachers. They're going to pull you apart. And so are staff. Yeah. Absolutely. They get they're really gonna, annoyed when you do one thing for one kid and a different thing for another. 100%. Because it isn't fair and isn't mm. consistent and it doesn't follow those guidelines and those boundaries that you have set up. So so when, you know, when we come back to that idea of that buy-in with staff, I think like an important element of that is identifying the challenges that we're experiencing as a school, as a staff. So really getting, giving staff a voice in that situation. And I mean, this is something that I do in a wellbeing space is finding out what is impacting your wellbeing, what are the challenges that we're facing, what are the initiatives that you think would be most effective. And this is important when I think when it comes to behaviour with staff too is what are we seeing across the school? And that gives the staff the opportunity to say, oh, well, students, there's a group of students doing this, but also maybe leadership have one set of rules for this group of students but a different one for that. And opening up the floor and giving them the opportunity to talk about it helps you be diagnostic about how then to develop your framework or your plan or system that's going to speak to all of the staff. Mm -hmm. And it helps you to work out what to focus on first. And if one thing is inconsistency, if staff keep saying that, well, then you think, okay, well, we obviously need a framework or a flowchart or something visual that we go to and agree on. 100%. You know, in regards to the common mistakes that get made around this area as well is that you, you might put that work into place and let's say, you know, all good intentions considered, you know, that you do something, you do all this, you put all this work in, it might take you a year to do that. And then schools park it and forget about it. The one thing you know, you and I never did is we, it never went without reviewing. Every six months, we were doing big data sets and looking at how is our flowchart working? How is our behavior reducing? Mm-hmm. Or what's happening and why? And how do we tweak? You know, and we were doing that constantly. And staff yeah. would roll their eyes at it sometimes. But yep. I think back to when we let it go and we didn't do anything on it for a while. We're like, we have the systems in place. I mean, schools are coming to visit us to see what we're doing here. We're doing it awesome. And we were like, oh, we know what we're doing. So we moved on and started focusing on other things. And the second you took your eye off the prize, things started going out the window. Right. And staff started doing their own things in many ways. So did probably the leadership. Like, we're we're not perfect in this. No one's perfect. You have to keep refocusing on it. So 
you know, the really important thing you touched on there is one, you've got to go back and revisit, but two, you've got to work individually with your staff mm. around those processes too. Mm. So what we ran is a massive coaching and mentoring, you know, approach to when staff were having, you know, troubles in lots of areas, one of those areas being behavior, we get in there and work with them individually around mm. that, you know, or, you know, when new staff came in, we'd upskill them in what was going on, mm. what the processes were. It wasn't just, this is what we do and you can figure it out. It was walk the walk. Talk the talk, let's do it together, let's do it side by side, let's review what happened and how Mm. that went and what can we change next time. Yeah, and that's the tricky thing about student management. I think that I was able to hone in on my skills being as part of the leadership team. Mm. So being off class and watching other leaders and how they manage students with complex behaviours, you learn, you pick up on things because you're watching that all the time. But staff in their classrooms are only in there usually on their own. They're not able to watch the practice of others who are really good at building relationships or following processes or implementing positive behaviours for learning with their classroom. And this is the thing. And so I think as leaders, in many ways, we sort of fast track our ability to develop our skills. Mm -hmm. Not always, but definitely in my experience. But that coaching and mentoring element in terms of peer feedback and learning walks is critical for staff to be able to learn off one another and really work out better ways to be able to connect with and redirect some of their students. I mean, that's just holistic in itself, isn't it? I mean, that idea of self We ask our students mm. to do that all the time. You mm. know, oh, be open to this and do this in front of your classmates and yet our doors are closed and none of our, oh, no. none of our staff come in and when they do it, everyone's like, you know, kick up a tantrum because, no, I couldn't possibly do that. And Yeah, I don't have time. You know, oh. But that's exactly what we have to do. Mm. We have to open up those doors and we have to be self-reflective and we have mm. to review what we do and why we do it. So it sounds to me so far some of those common mistakes are not getting the buy-in and involvement from our staff to actually develop what it is that we do in terms of student management in As our school. Yeah. Um, second, it's that we're not leaning on and learning from one another and, and sort of engaging in that coaching and mentoring side of things. Anything else? In that we're area? not keeping it on the burner for yes, long enough or yes, we're not coming yep. back to it enough. Absolutely. It's not one of those priorities that can be done and moved. Mm. It's got to constantly be part of the cycle because I think we'll talk a little bit about it later, but it's a parallel journey. You know, behavior and curriculum and learning is a parallel journey and you've got to work on them all the time yeah. together. Well, you can't access the learning if the behavior is not on track it's <laughs> and the engagement's not there. All right, so if you could explain in a nutshell what your philosophy is on supporting student well-being and behaviour. So we've talked a lot about getting involvement from staff and, you know, I already know we've talked a lot about connection here. But for those listening who are like, okay, well, behaviour is a challenge in my school and I don't even know where to start or what I should be doing, what is your philosophy there? I think to summarise it quickly would be you have a sound an understood and understandable structure that people can lean on. But then, you know, in terms of that philosophy, you, you have to approach every student in every situation with an open mind and an understanding that they're an individual. And it's how do you work that individual into what's happening in that environment and in that school environment and against that, you know, sort of behaviour process or protocol or, you know, system that you have. So not being prejudiced and and judgmental when it comes into student, because it's so easy and so quick to do that, especially as an adult, you know, but understanding that every situation is, you know, potentially special or or individual to that student Mm. and significant. For me, in a nutshell, understanding behavior 
is understanding what they're trying to communicate. And if you can understand what it is they're trying to get out of that behavior, then you can unlock some of those mechanisms. So it's being open-minded enough to, to know that you know, this little person isn't necessarily, or a big person, against you. They're just, they're unsure about what's happening. They're trying to communicate something. And they might not even know what it is. <laughs> so if you can you know, be open-minded enough and you know, free of judgment and prejudice when it comes to interacting with them, then you've got a great, a great chance of trying The word to- that comes to mind when you're talking for me right now is being curious. Like, you know, what could be possibly going on here? Yeah. What are they trying to, to tell me? Yeah. 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 Without that, those, those layers of like, oh, this is the, you know, the 10th time they've done this and, mm. you know, I know what's going to happen. You know, you've got to step away from that. And mm. as frustrating as it can, I mean, I mean, I think parents, you know, would understand this. You know, your child does whatever and you think, oh, I've got it sorted. But they're just amazing little people that are learning to be those individuals that Mm. they are. And we just have to sort of interact with them in a way to help and guide them as best we can. Sometimes it's not going to work at all. Other times we're going to have great breakthroughs. But it's being free of that judgment to allow each situation to sort of unfold as it needs to. And you being that that person who helps and guides, not corrects and, you know, and is the disciplinary, but, but helps and guides and shows them. How can we help and guide and show them? So I like you, you kind of, this was going to lead into my next question you were talking about. You know, it's not about sort of telling them off or telling them, I guess, what they're doing wrong. I know from my experience with you that you massively focus on recognizing the positive behaviors and and reinforcing those as well as setting those expectations. But did you want to expand on that concept a little bit more because it's changed a lot over time. I mean, we used to be so corrective when oh, we first started teaching yeah. and it's really evolved and changed now Yeah, and that language we use. I mean, that concept comes from, you know, rather than telling kids what's the wrong thing to do, you know, you've got to move away from that because then all they've got in their head is the wrong thing. So that positive behaviours for learning is around setting up schools with, you know, a positive outlook on this is what we're expecting for you to do. So right from the start, the language, the behaviours, the, the visuals, everything's around, oh, this is what I do to be successful and to be interactive, to be harmonious in this environment. That then comes into the individual staff when they're interacting with the students around how do you ask questions and prompt students, you know, to understand the learning without saying, you know, this is wrong or, you know, you did that wrong or being a punitive in terms of, well, you know, here's your consequence because you wouldn't sit still for long enough or you weren't quiet enough when I wanted you to be. It's about getting them to understand the bigger picture. And it takes time, and that's the tricky thing. And that's where we we conflict with what's happening in terms of, you know, students, uh, sorry, staff's workload. How do we give staff the time they need to be able to address the individual needs of a student, what's happening. So, And it is, it's all around using that positive language. So it's about identifying what we're looking for in the student and how they're interacting in the classroom and in the space. And I know we spent a lot of time sort of setting those expectations, but it comes back to what we are talking about earlier, is that the whole school and every classroom and even every student has involvement in those expectations too. It's not something we just dictate we set up all of those expectations across all of the learning areas in the school with the school community. Well, once you go past the expectations, it becomes what are the processes? And that is powerful for the students to be part of as well. Mm-hmm. What do they want to happen when things aren't going right for them? Mm-hmm. Do they want to go, you know, sit at the naughty desk in the corner of the room? Well, no. So what does that look like in their space? How do they get given the time they need to de-escalate without feeling shamed or without feeling, you know, like they're in trouble? Because for every different kid, it's a different reason as to why they're, you know, not at that baseline at that point in time. 
and it's about that that time is really important so i mean that was the point i was kind of making before but what we did is we created systems that gave teachers the time that they mm. needed to do that and that was about having leadership systems in place that allowed teachers to come in and sub out with a you know one of our biggest things was you know if we've come into a classroom it might not be to you know to deal with the naughty student it might be to go hey i need time off class so that I can have time to talk with the student right now. Can you continue running my, my yeah. lesson for the next five oh my minutes? God, I ran minutes? so many random lessons just coming in <laughs> so that the teacher could go and debrief or unpack with the student rather than me just coming in and being the saviour all the time. That yep. takes all of the power away. It takes away. power away from staff and it's not the answer. Yeah. You know, the, the key relation, and it keeps coming back to that word relationships, is with the, the staff, the teacher, that person, the classroom teacher and the kid. You know, that's the key relationship. You and I can come in and we can be heroes and we can offer this and we can do that and that's great, but it's actually not any benefit to the student or to the teacher. Yeah, absolutely. Because they're not learning how to work through that process. They're not given the time to work on build on each other's relationships. All right, so student behaviour and wellbeing, we know, really does impact more than just the students themselves. So what can we do to support the teachers and staff in this area, particularly when they're, you know, they're, they are those schools who are reporting that challenging student behaviours are their top stresses. It's a great question. It's a big question. It's a big philosophy to get your head around. When I came into the leadership roles, biggest thing that I thought to myself at those point in times was I have to make relationships that are, that are long-lasting, that are meaningful, not just with my students, more importantly, with my leaders and with my staff. Because if my staff understood that I cared about what they were doing, and then I'd go to whatever length I needed to go to to support them, then I knew they'd go to whatever length they had to do to support the student. And so those relationships are, are what's pivotal when it comes to staff wellbeing and student wellbeing. I think it's also important too when it comes to the debriefing, particularly after a challenging day or a critical incident, is if you've got that relationship with your leader or with your principal and you've had a really bad day or you've been shaken or you've even had a traumatic experience with a student, having that connection and relationship with those who lead you in particular is so important for, to be able to recover. It is crucial. And come back the next day. It is. I've heard many a staff member say to me in our school setting, you know, it doesn't matter how bad the behaviour is and what happens, I know that I'll be supported in mm-hmm. what has to happen next and feeling safe to come back. Yeah. So the feeling of safety and knowing that people have got your back, which are essentially your leadership team has got your back as a staff member, that's what makes you feel like you've got what it takes to be able to keep doing the job you need to do, which is mm-hmm. one of the hardest jobs in the world. <laughs> Being a teacher, not only is it one of the hardest, one of the most important jobs. And if you are not looked after and supported in a way that it needs to be, then it's cactus. Yeah, I think of all the times, you know, we had it really rough in our school. The time my hair was pulled or pulled between mm-hmm. through doors, I was attacked when I was pregnant. But I came back the next day because you supported me and I felt safe and I felt cared for and I felt like the, the consequences. We come back to that fairness. Mm-hmm. Again, everything was fair. I was involved in the process of debriefing and unpacking and what I thought needed to happen and had a greater understanding too of actually like system-wise what we could do mm-hmm. and, 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 and having a say in that and involvement as well as with the family too. Like I'm thinking about 
even re-entries with students and being involved in that process rather than it just being something like, oh, well, this happened to you, so we'll just sort of keep you and that student away from each other or we'll always move you out of the space when we're there. No, 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 that's not how it goes. It was about feeling that sense of security and safety in the environment that you had to come into and work in every day. Yep, absolutely. And that sort of safety is felt through having those clear processes, those clear boundaries, being firm but fair having those conversations that are restorative that build relationships yeah, back so with important. students and staff and mm. staff and staff and, yep. and staff and parents yeah because that builds an understanding and a trust with that everyone knows that the best interest is what's at heart here it's not that you know they've done x and so you know b has to happen it's about well this is our process this is what's going to be fair and, and firm but we're going to be flexible in this space with you and we're going to work in this context with you and we're going to help, you know, provide this extra time for you to, you know, work on maybe elements that you don't have in terms of students, but in particular staff as well. Mm. I remember countless times where, you know, staff members would be, I can't believe how much time you spend in my classroom or I can't believe, you know, how much time you have for a conversation with a student mm. or, you know, you know, you're never in your office. And, and to be honest, I, I probably wasn't because I was you on weren't. the ground. You never answered any emails. <laughs> Not during work time. Not during daylight working hours. because you were. We could never find you around the school. Yeah, it's true. I was out and about. But what that did is it created an environment where people knew that I was going to be there to help them. You know, and the same thing then flowed onto my leadership team. And leaders, you know, we had designated times where we were doing our admin, designated times where we were out on the floor, you know, and they were clearly defined so that people knew they had time to get stuff done, but they also needed to and We to really staff. started nailing that when, you know, a staff member would pop their head in with like, oh, the person actually on support is this person. And it's not because you're you know, sitting there on your emails, for instance, you might have been, but generally it was it was to free us up to be able to do those really important, well, you know, you know coaching, yeah. mentoring, yeah, exactly. whatever else was going on. And yeah. Thousands of things you could have do. The one big thing I think that sort of comes through in that involvement that you give staff and that understanding and that safety is all around communication. Mm -hmm. And so often behaviors and, uh, you know, particularly I'm thinking even of critical incidences or when a a leader comes down to respond and then they deal with the issue, which is great because then it gives the teachers the ability to carry on with their learning program. So we sort of really worked that out as much as possible. We would come in and allow them to step out with the student, but sometimes that wasn't possible, nor was it the situation, but it was all around the communication after the fact of what's happened, where we're up to, we've called the school so that the teacher was in the loop. And I'm not saying we're perfect at it all the time because anyone who's listening here who's a leader knows that that's so hard sometimes with everything that's popping up but I think staff gave us the benefit of the doubt because more often than not the communication was there yeah absolutely bang on because there were times that we'd reflect back on that and go oh yeah I didn't get a chance to give that information but but and the staff would go yeah that was but but it's because they knew that 98% of the time we would do that yes and there was countless times I remember thinking I can't actually go home just yet because I need to close off Mm. this communication loop so that my staff know tomorrow when they walk in or tonight if they're going to check their emails what's happened what they can expect all those kind of yeah, but there's so, like the systems that are out there now for you to log even connections that you've had with family you have to do it now i'm not sure every school i mean we probably say you have to do it because we just had a good system we had the but system many said, schools probably don't <laughs> but you would just log on the next morning if you were a teacher and you'd left by the end of the day and i was still calling families just before five o'clock and teachers might have already gone but they could log back onto the system and see what had happened yep there and was a catch for that yeah, system well we got really good at doing that again it's never perfect but i think 
in terms of many schools, we probably, I think we're doing really well. We were doing really well. <laughs> yeah. Communication is massive. And if people are on the same page and understand what's happening, then they can be flexible because they've got all the parts of the puzzle. 100%. It's like what I've always, you know, we've talked a bit about it before too, but understanding a bigger picture means that everyone's working towards mm. it. If you mm. only give people little parts of the puzzle, they never know where they're going yeah. or what the destination is. So, you know, the relationships help you to, to work with, you know, effective communication. Yeah. Alongside workload administration tasks, lack of planning time and student behaviour, poor communication is one of the top stresses across schools right across Australia. Right. And... It's hard to communicate well in a big school, I'm thinking in particular. When you're flat out. Yeah. But we've. this is why you need systems and processes and expectations across the board. And priorities, though. Yeah. And priorities. Yeah. And, and so for me, the priority was, rather than doing my emails at that point in time, mm. communicating with staff yeah. on the ground and working with them in those space. What would you prefer, a teacher or a principal always on the emails and getting back to you or in your space communicating? Yeah, yeah. Well, I know what I'd prefer. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and rather than have my email, you know, answered the very, you know, minute or whatever it was, I'd rather have support in that space. Yeah. A relationship You did always get back to us. You did. understanding. Yeah, it might take some time. Yeah. <laughs> but or I'd I just also, come and annoy you in your office. But you know what? I communicated that pretty clearly <laughs> yeah. as well. I, I made it really clear to my staff yeah. that this is what my priorities are. If that means I don't get back to the email today or something, then that's what's going to be. That's it. You know, but that, but staff cut you slack because they, they knew they knew, and and again, you're communicating that it's obvious. You put out the expectations that not only you have on staff, but what they can have on you as well. Yeah, 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 spot on. Love it. All right, so this podcast is aptly titled "Well-Led Schools," which is a play on words to reflect those schools who lead with well-being in mind. What is one thing you think that schools or school leaders can do to prioritise well-being that would make the biggest difference in their school? I think the one thing that leaders in a school need to do to ensure that staff well-being is met, and, you know, if I was to have a quote or something, it would be that the the core to success is the quality of the relationship. Mm. So the truth here is that the one thing they can do is to get to know their staff explicitly and work with them mm-hmm. in a way that builds trust, it builds empathy, and shows them that you know we are people, individual people that care about each other, and that together we can produce something that's amazing. You know, for the students in this. Situation. Hallelujah! <laughs> but that is the ticket to knowing and understanding each individual staff member's needs and requirements for their health and well-being. Spot if you on. know and understand them, it's more than just putting out a spread oh. of biscuits. If you know that Susie down in kindergarten is having a really rough trot at home or not sleeping well because her kids are up all night, you've got, first of all, that connection. You have, you know, that sort of in to, to talk about give advice if you have any, help, I need some of that, and be able to understand them and that they feel like they can be vulnerable and you know exactly what support that they may or may not need or just cutting them a little bit of slack. Yeah. So important. Learning to be a good listener Yeah. was one of the biggest skills I did as a leader. Learning to listen, truly listen, you know, Mm. so that then I could understand every individual person because... It's great to have a calendar that says, you know, on Friday afternoon, week three, we're going to get together and do lawn bowls or Mm. that's probably extravagant. Mm. It might be that we're just going to have a spread after work or we're going to do, you know, there might be really easy 
and unfortunately I'm going to say tokenistic things that we can do for well-being, but unless you're part of it and unless you're listening to it and unless you're contributing to it, you're not actually making a difference to well-being. Yeah. yeah. You know, you've got to be on the ground, you've got to be there with the staff and you've got to know them and what they need. 100%. One of the first things on my to-do list of a day before I had a child and no, therefore no longer got to work on time, but when I did used to get to work super early, was I would be down in classrooms talking to my team. Yep. As people, not just always as teachers, no. but as people. How was your weekend? What was going on? Yeah. Making connections. Yeah, sensing if they were feeling anxious about their day or overwhelmed, and then therefore, how can I help and support you? Do I need to pop back in if they're yep. a bit worried about a student? It does. It takes time out of you know your day and the things that you need. You feel like you need to get done, but it yields the most results, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. That's, it is the core. All right, my last question is that if there was a meme going around, you know, I love it, particularly on LinkedIn and social media, resharing a meme that has a bit of a quote from thought leaders in terms of well-being and, and leadership. But if there was a meme doing the rounds from you about health, well-being or leadership, what would it say? Yeah, the key to great success is great relationships. Yes, Rob Lands. We'll make it. We'll start <laughs> circulating it. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Rob, for being my, my guest on my very first episode with somebody else on Well-Led Schools. Love it. I'm glad it was you. Thanks for having me. And yeah, I'm sure we'll be seeing lots more of you. Can't wait. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. Thank you so much for joining Rob and I for this conversation today. As always, my team has put together the show notes for this episode, complete with any information and links mentioned. These are available wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you're interested in getting in touch to hear about how we can support you with strategies to improve student and classroom management and the well-being of the staff in your school, please reach out via email at hello at adrianhornby.com.au to inquire about our exciting new staff well-being programs and support options coming soon in 2023. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Well-Led Schools. I look forward to connecting with you at adrianhornby.com.au. Here you can get in contact with me, learn more about my approach and join my mailing list. I'm Adrienne Hornby. Thanks again for your time and stay well. <laughs>